All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the fifth day of September 2017. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe to that letter by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office in New York during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I'd also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's newsletter, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? And you can do that by going to ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. want to thank each of you for listening to this show and also to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises. Send them on to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Klondike Gold, New Range Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals Corp., Osprey Gold Development, and Fireweed Zinc. I've titled today's show, Michael Oliver's Plate Tectonics Bode Well for Gold Shares. Jeff Deist, Dr. Mark Thornton, John Rubino, and Michael Oliver are this week's guests. With permission from the Mises Institute in just a minute, we will play a discussion aired at Mises Org between Jeff Deist and Dr. Mark Thornton. The discussion centers on how low interest rates orchestrated by central bankers are the cause, not the cure, for booms, busts, and devastation in the economy. Speaking through the lens of Austrian economics, both Deist and Dr. Thornton agree that it's impossible to know exactly when a boom will turn into a bust, but they agree that that is the inevitable outcome. Michael Oliver is another advocate of free market Austrian economics, and he also agrees that it's impossible to know exactly when a boom will end. But this experienced technical analyst has an enviable track record for determining when you can safely take a longer-term position on either the long or short side of a market. Michael has now correctly called major turns for gold, commodities, the dollar, T-bonds, and stocks which is why he is on this radio show almost every week. He has an enviable track record. The fundamentals underlying our distorted markets will be the topic discussed with John Rubino during the second half of today's show, and time permitting, your host and John will also talk about some exceptionally promising junior exploration stocks, some of which are sponsors to this show. 
Without wasting any time, let's tune in now to a recent discussion on the Mises Institute in which Jeff Dice discusses with Dr. Mark Thornton how central bankers are the cause, not the cure, for booms and busts in the business cycle. And after Jeff and Dr. Thornton complete their discussions, we will have a commercial break. But please stick around because right after that, the guy who has learned to time markets with the business cycle better than anyone I know, Michael Oliver, will be with me. Now let's hear now what Jeff and Dr. Thornton have to say. Take it away, Jeff and Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekends. I'm sure you all know our guest, Mark Thornton, longtime senior fellow here at the Mises Institute, uh, professor across the street at Auburn University, and our in-house resident expert on booms and busts and business cycles. And that's what we're talking about today. Mark, you, I'm sure you saw uh, yesterday... Uh, Janet Yellen made some pronouncements about a fairly dovish Fed policy for the next few months, although she did say she's going to start to unwind the balance sheet that the Fed's accumulated since the 08-09 crash. And uh, whether these things are related or not, the Dow Jones hit its all-time high of about 21,000. Uh, up from its most recent low in 2009 of about 6,600. So uh, the markets uh, apparently responded favorably, or at least not uh, disfavorably. You know, let me ask you something overarching to begin. You know, obviously, we're, we're Austrians. We see things in terms of monetary policy, but there, it feels like there's an ersatz quality to this prosperity, and there, there's something... Um, insubstantial or artificial about the uh, the run up in the equities markets. Oh, absolutely! You know when you, Janet Yellen or any chairman of the Fed speaks, it's always a positive spin, and so the markets love that. They love the idea that she's not going to raise rates uh, very rapidly. Um, so when you look at Washington D.C., you're always going to see a positive spin on things, and Wall Street just loves that. But when you look at the real economy and you look at real employment situations, um, things are not very good at all, and the economy is not growing much at all. And here in Auburn, of course, the Ertzatz quality is just so patently obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. You have more construction. Uh, trucks and equipment moving through town than anything else. Um, it's a, it's rather a bizarre scene out there with these uh, low interest rates have brought about. Yeah, we, we don't have a skyscraper index in Auburn because we don't have skyscrapers, but we have cranes. We have cranes everywhere you look in Auburn. It's really quite an amazing phenomenon. Um, well, they're, they're building the tallest building in Auburn right now, and they've torn down two city blocks to build... Um, Structures mm-hmm. that are as as least as tall, so uh, you d- you don't get a world record setting skyscraper here in Auburn, but you do get a local record. Right, and and for people who aren't familiar, this is a, a small little bucolic college town of maybe sixty thousand people. So some of the restaurants and condominiums uh, being built here, as a lot of the population shifts from the northeast to the south, it, it really it's really changing sort of the tenor of the town. Oh, yes. I mean, it's a sleepy little college town where the tallest building used to be two stories. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking seven and eight. Um, and it, like I said, the, the amount of construction uh, materials and uh, job sites on campus and off campus is just unbelievable. It's unprecedented. Never before uh, in history have I seen anything like this. Well, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I hear a lot of this from our fans and from people who consume our media and come to our events. It's about timing. You know, if we feel like we're in a boom, 
the boom is followed by a bust, and when is that going to happen? What should I do? What should I buy? What should I sell? What should I hold? What should I short? Um, I, I want to give our listeners a, a Ludwig von Mises quote where he just says, economics can tell us only that a boom en- engendered by credit expansion will not last. It cannot tell us after what amount of credit expansion the sump will start or when this event will occur. Now, that can be pretty unsatisfying Unsatisfying for people, right? They want to know, what can I look for? What are the indicators? What are the markers? So how, how would you respond to the questions about timing? We don't know, and that's the truth. And that's the limit of the analysis that Austrian economics can bring about. Uh, but it's a very important truth. Uh, so it tells people, it warns people, that if you do have a credit-induced boom, that ultimately things are going to get ugly in the economy, and you're going to see similar types of results in terms of rising unemployment, um, bankruptcies, foreclosures, restructuring, all of those things are going to take place eventually, uh, and Austrians are just being open and honest when they say they don't know when it's going to start, um, they don't know how significant significant the bust is going to be, uh, how tangled up it can get, mm-hmm. like with the housing bubble uh, and all the financial engineering that helped bring it about, it was a very tangled mess. And so the financial crisis was v- very severe. Well, let's talk specifically about real estate for a second. Uh, about a year or so ago when we were in Boston, you spoke about some of the things that uh, real estate investors or real estate owners ought to maybe consider or be looking at it as signs that we're near a peak or we're near some sort of unreasonable housing market. Well, of course, there's all sorts of real estate metrics out there, um, home sales, uh, home starts, building permits. Uh, there's a whole raft of, uh, uh, of statistics related to real estate. And so they paint a very general picture. But if you see uh, home starts uh, increasing beyond the average, if you see home sales and home prices, uh, of course, you know, housing prices are still uh, twice as high or, or more than they were mm. 15 years ago. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, the price of all these things, the cost of building new real estate is rising as the industry, as the construction industry gets very tight. Of course, they're asking higher prices for their services. Uh, and so, whereas, you know, mainstream economists tend to look at the unemployment rate and GDP, Austrians like to dig down beneath that and look at a whole host of uh, of statistical indicators to look at the whole structure of the economy, the structure of an industry, and where it is vis-a-vis normal times. Well, you know, when we look back in into recent history, we see the uh, tech stock crash of 2000-2001. Obviously, we see the real estate run-up and the crash of 2008, which also brought Wall Street down, at least in part, Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed. Um, what can those two events maybe tell us about where we are today? I mean, what can, have we learned anything? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, you know, th- it was artificially low interest rates that caused those two crises. And we've been doing nothing but having uh, ridiculously low interest rates, even after the last couple of increases. Interest rates are still ridiculously low, uh, especially in inflation-adjusted terms. The financial industry is giving away credit or trying to give it away. Here's a, here's something that happened to me yesterday, Jeff. Um, I got an email from my bank that wanted to give me another credit card and was going to pay me $100 to use it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got uh, a, an offer um, 
in the mail from another credit card that I have that was going to pay me or give me uh, $200 of discounts over the next three months if I spent a certain amount of money on the card. And then when I uh, left work yesterday, I went to the grocery store and uh, did a self-checkout. And when uh, I paid my bill, up out of the cash register came an offer mm-hmm. for the grocery store credit card. And if I spent a certain amount of money, they would going to give me $75 worth of discounts. All three of those things happened yesterday. Well, you know, these kind of anecdotal uh, incidents... But, you know, there are people who have timed markets, uh, shorted markets and gotten very rich. I'm sure a lot of us have seen the big short um, where Dr. Michael Burry and some of his associates correctly called the housing market. There's also obviously uh, Mark Spitznagel, who's the op- author of the Dow Capital, runs an, a hedge fund called Universa. Um, he became very wealthy uh, shorting certain equities in the 2008 crash. But I want to read you. A, a quote from him because he's not an academic. He's an, uh, he's a trader and a hedge fund manager and a wealthy guy. He's not some theoretical economist like Ludwig von Mises making pronouncements, but he, he's talking about timing markets and he says, I think it's probably naive to even think we can pinpoint such a thing. If history is any guide, we should expect it sooner rather than later, but history need not be a good guide because we're in this monetary experiment, the likes of which we haven't really seen before. And this is something you touch on in your recent article called the Bernanke Yellen Bubble Depression, which is we're really in in new territory here. The, the, our, our central banking friends don't really know what's going on. That's absolutely right. Now, Mark is, uh, knows Austrian theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I've reviewed his book favorably, and uh, he certainly knows Mises and Bastia and the Austrian theory of the business cycle. So he's got that basic tool, and, and then he, you know, he goes about his personal business uh, trying to feel his way through. And that's basically what people have to do is they have to be prepared, certainly uh, knowing that there's a bust coming. But then you have to more or less feel your way through. Um, I remember uh, the article that I wrote about the housing bubble in 2000 and, 2004, uh, in June 2004. Uh, it was just a couple anecdotes uh, of things that happened to me and my friends. Uh, one friend put a house on the market on a Sunday morning, and by Sunday afternoon he had several offers and one of them was for much more than the asking price so in a matter of hours on a sunday so real estate agents were working on sunday that's one thing but then to have multiple offers on a sunday and then have the house sold in a matter of six hours and getting more than your asking price those are the kind of things you want to um, be alert for when people start saying crazy things and our house flipping and day trading right. without any real knowledge or abilities, uh, that's when things are totally out of whack. You know, you talk about in the article how, at least on paper, uh, the economic growth is, is decent, unemployment's fairly low, but yet interest rates uh, are remaining very low uh, per the machinations of central bankers. I want to ask your opinion on this. You know, contrast this with the late 70s, early 80s, Paul Volcker was the Fed chair. And at this point, we had high inflation. We had relatively high unemployment, uh, little or no economic growth, so-called stagflation. But yet, at least for a period, Volcker was able to resist the political pressures of both Carter and Reagan and keep interest rates very high. I mean, here we are today. 
uh, in supposedly a, a relatively decently growing economy, have they just decided that forever and ever low interest rates are the are the the the, uh, the road to prosperity? That's the only tool they have. You know, if you're a carpenter, everything looks like a nail, and if you're a Fed uh, chairman, everything looks like cutting interest rates. And of course, Yellen is a total dove. In other words, she's mm-hmm. going to err. Um, on the side of keeping interest rates too low for too long. Uh, This has never been attempted in the history of mankind, keeping interest rates near zero for seven-plus years. Um, And so we're on... We have unprecedented uh, history behind us, and that's why I'm very worried about, you know, what's going to happen as this bubble comes to an end. Well, you even say it ought to be termed the Bernanke-Yellen bubble depression, uh, we talk about business cycles, and I think the public has this mystical idea that, that these, these cycles are just inevitable or they're inherent in man's nature or in, or in the business world. And maybe we ought to really call them central bank cycles, right, because they're engineered, they're created. That's absolutely correct. And I wrote an article on Mises.org uh, a couple weeks ago where I laid out this proposition that we should name a crisis for who created it, not – you know, the housing bubble. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't housing that got out of whack per se. It wasn't construction companies that got out of whack per se. It was engineered by the Fed. And so the fundamentals, you know, said build more houses, build bigger houses. Uh, but those fundamentals were totally falsified by these ultra low interest rates. And so I blame, you know, the, the housing bubble on Bernanke and Greenspan. I blame the current situation and looming crisis on Bernanke and Yellen because they're the ones that's causing it. Otherwise, if you leave this to journalists and uh, Federal Reserve chairmen, they'll always blame the market. They'll always blame some irrational uh, phenomenon that's uh, emerging from the social psychology of all things when, in fact, we know... The real cause is artificially low interest rates, and we know who's pulling the strings. It's the Fed. So, Mark, we're almost out of time. I want to I want to talk uh, here at the end about this uh, mythology surrounding home ownership in the United States, and that we've been led to believe it's ever and always an investment rather than just a, a durable consumer good. Oh yes, um, home ownership is part of the mythology of American ideology, and we've done everything. Uh, from giving tax breaks and all sorts of subsidies to home ownership. Um, and there, you know, there's obviously a lot of benefits to owning a home in the current context, but actually going forward, I expect home ownership to decline consistently over time because we're a much more mobile mm-hmm. society. We're, we need to be more mobile uh, as workers and as entrepreneurs. Right now, there's still people caught in the cobweb of the housing bubble where they can't unload their home to move to an economy where there's more jobs. And so I would like to see, and I expect to see, home ownership declining and hopefully at some point, maybe after this real estate bubble collapses, that people will be um, reluctant to uh, to become homeowners and would rather rent and be flexible and to not have some of the hassles that are involved in homeownership and taxes and all the rest. 
Well, you know, we see in places like Germany and Switzerland where only about uh, uh, 20% of people own homes, about 80% rent. And we've also seen examples in the last crash of people who were stuck in their house because they paid too much for it. It was worth far less. And even though there might have been job opportunities in another part of the country, they felt they couldn't move. So it's an interesting time, and hopefully the Mises Institute is doing its part to uh, educate people about these bubbles and about uh, central banking so that pe- more people can understand that these aren't just natural or organic occurrences. So with that, Mark Thornton, thanks so much for your time. Great talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have Michael Oliver with me today once again. Uh, You should definitely visit Michael's website at olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com. There you can learn why I hold Michael and his work in such high esteem and why he's on this show. If you study uh, his track record and his methodology, it just makes total sense to me, and its I guess it really makes sense to me because I've seen it's been so effective. Uh, you can actually go there, and Michael is uh, kind enough to offer sample reports. Just go uh, click on the link, Contacts Sample Reports, uh, and I guess you enter your name and so forth, and he'll send out um, reports to you. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Michael. Great to be back, Jay. Always good to have you. you. know, we just heard from Jeff Deist and Dr. Mark Thornton. Uh, they were talking about booms and busts that are caused by central bank manipulation of interest rates. Um, they also stated that, you know, from an Austrian point of view, it's impossible to predict when a bubble will collapse, like the housing bubble, the dot-com bubble that we had earlier in the you know, a decade or so ago. Do you, do you agree with that view, that the cause of market booms and busts uh, are really the 
uh, the central banks, but it's impossible to predict when they will implode? Well, I think you can predict uh, or time it fairly well, uh, sometimes precisely, sometimes generally. But, yeah, no, I think a timing can be achieved. Uh, I, I split with the Austrians on, the, on that issue. Uh-huh. Uh, but I do fully agree that the central banks are the primary cause of, of the, the causal factor of the boom-bust cycles. And uh, Dr. Murray Rothbard, who founded the Mises Institute, uh, from which those two guys are, are from, uh, in his book on America's Great Depression, he, he traces back the monetary distortions that occurred uh, prior to the boom and causing the boom, which then, mm-hmm. of course, caused the bust. Sure. Um, and um, anyway, but uh, so it, it goes back a long way, and it's, it's traceable, and I think it's timable. Uh, we've done a fair, fairly good job of timing tops and bottoms in the S&P over the last, well, since we've been in business, since 1992. Uh, but well, sometimes I, I, the major, the one thing the investors need to be aware of is once a major turn occurs, uh, as, as we define it, breaking annual momentum, for, for example, it might uh-huh. not be apparent on the price charts, but no. it's pretty clear on the momentum charts. And it's, it's more often than not, a market will flounder around its top or around its bottom for a while, even after it's given its rendered signal that it's changing trend. And this confuses people. Uh, yeah. The longs and the shorts, it's a debatable thing. You know, they look at the price charts and they go, but we've experienced that in gold over the last year and a half. Yeah. Uh, we've been yeah, positive sure. all along, and we've had some sharp breaks. Uh, and many people run in for the windows at that point, but there, there was no real reason to. And uh, now suddenly gold is is beating its chest quite loudly. <laughs> so, okay, Michael, uh, so the reason, I mean, and, and this was just a few, a few weeks back, well, a, a couple of months ago, when gold was looking like it could be threatening to go down, head towards a thousand again, and you held firm on that, I think uh, basically at one point you said, "Well, at the very worst, we would be neutral if it if yeah. certain things happen." But what caused you to remain resolutely positive about gold, or at the least neutral? What did well, you see? There was also the good correction in December of last year, which was the biggest of all. And then we had one in July. And at both of those points uh, in time, we defined a number below the market that, that said, if you hit this number, we'll go to neutral. And both sell-offs stopped within about $5 of our number without hitting the number. Therefore, we weren't forced into a neutral stance. Um, and uh, so you know, we're real happy with that. And now, of course, it's, it's pretty obvious what gold's trying to do. It's trying to really blow out of this base. So on the price charts, momentum has already come out of its base, but the, the price charts are lagging. But, uh, no, it's, uh, that would have put us neutral had we hit certain numbers. But, uh, for instance, the July sell-off is very interesting, and you have to be aware of this if you're a price chart watcher. Mm-hmm. Since the December low last year, there have been an ascending pattern of sell-off lows in gold, each one higher, 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 mm-hmm. and that's up through May. And when we turned down in July, you took out the May low. Oh. There's a sequence of, like, five higher lows. But you can't maintain that kind of pattern of constantly higher lows. You need to yeah. sooner or later go down and break one of them. Why? To clean it out a bit. Mm-hmm. To run yeah. the week longs out of the market. And that's exactly what they did. July went down, took out the May low by $10, just enough to run them out. And as soon as it did, it turned and sh- shot back up 1300 mm-hmm. And now we're pushing 1350 So uh, sometimes the uh, price charts... Uh, can be very deceptive because when the price took out the May low, momentum did not. All right, so, Michael, what are your what are your what is your momentum telling you now? Your momentum indicators in terms of what we might see on the upside 
from a mom- okay. momentum perspective. Okay. Well, uh, it happens to somewhat agree with what price would now say. If you mm-hmm. look at a price chart of gold, let's say a monthly or a weekly, going back several years, you'll see a big head and shoulder type pattern as the price chart technicians like to call it. And if you can get out above, much above today's high, you're going to break the weekly one out. And if you get above about 1370, you're going to break the monthly one out. At that point, the price charts have a swing objective using orthodox methods, about 1700. And we fully agree with that. Mm. And the reason we accept the price chart breakout is probably being valid, assuming you go through those numbers. Uh, Momentum is already broken out. Mm-hmm. So momentum is already in the lead, and therefore if price follows momentum, we trust it. If price does something that momentum doesn't do, we don't trust price. But in this right. case, we, we trust the upside. And I would say right now, if you could get through the 1350, especially get up into the 1370s, and that's not yeah. far away, uh, 1700 is where your next stopping point might be of any significance. And I don't mean the final end. I just mean a point of resistance that might... Require some fistfights, you know. I see. <laughs> okay. Well, you always have a very colorful way of, of describing these markets, which make it, which also makes it interesting. Well, I, I have to ask you in terms of your call to sell gold. You know, it's not like you're a perma gold right, bug. Right. Like you always want to own gold. There are times when you want to sell it, and your call, had I listened to you, would have saved a lot of grief and a lot of money for me. Going back, this was before I really started following you, but. You know, we had that $1,900 high in gold in 2011, mm-hmm. but you pulled the plug at one point in 2012 when your work said it's, mm-hmm. oh, well, now it was confirmed to get out of this yellow metal, uh, yep. and let's, uh, you know, let's go into cash for a bit. Yeah, what, and well, what, it, what, it, what, our uh, sell uh, signal was in early in, in, in January of that year. Uh, uh-huh. Price action was at that point in time, and then we issued the report was in the mid-1600s. So it was pretty, you know, decent off the high. But a lot of gold bulls thought it was a correction or a consolidation for another leg up. Problem was annual momentum had broken its backbone very clearly. If you saw a momentum chart, you'd, you'd walk away from the market. And that's what we suggested. But here's another example. It didn't really fall apart until April, May, and June of 2013, when gold went from 1600 down to 1100 in about four months, three, four months. We had mm-hmm. a crash, in other words. Um, yeah. It held off the total give up for about a year or so before it finally just you know, collapsed. And of course, yeah. that about effectively ended the bear market. It based af- after that. But uh, So even though we had a sell signal in early 2012, the real payoff didn't come till 13. Right. Well, I tell you, I, I wished I would have been listening to you then. I, I, it, I suffered a great deal along with a lot of other people uh, who remained bullish through that whole bearish time frame, especially in the shares. Uh, Michael, I saw you put out something just recently that you are still seeing the shares uh, mm-hmm. offering relatively better value than the bullion itself right now, right? Now, I, I still think my metrics when I measure the, the relationship, the spread relationship and the momentum of the spread between, for example, the GDX ETF, which is of the large gold miners, the better na- known names, and gold, uh, it still looks to me like in the, in the longer run here, uh, miners should beat gold. Um, th- this time around. Last time around, they didn't. In other words, the bull yeah. market that peaked in 2011, you wanted to be long gold during that couple of years. Mm. But mm. Uh, uh, this time around, I think the miners uh, stand a better chance. It may just be that they drove them too low. Yeah. The collapse was just too much in the gold miners, so they went off yeah. the page and uh, excessively oversold, and therefore they, their ability to rally percent-wise is stronger than gold because there's a right. vacuum above them, in effect. 
Well, again, you're looking at things from a fundamental point of view and speculating about what might happen and why it might happen. But under it, uh, and, and what you really pay attention to are the metrics that you look at so that it's a dispassionate view of the markets that you take mm-hmm. that I think is so important. Uh, in addition to your proven track record, Michael, and I just I just thank you so much for being with us. So many more things. The markets are turning. Those plate tectonics that you warned us about, talked about a couple over the past couple of years here now on the show, they really are turning in the direction. The last one to go that I, the major ones that I follow is the equity market. Today, the S and P is taking quite a hit. Uh, you you're quite confirmed now, and you called a short on the S&P 500 finally, right? With 30 well, seconds yeah, left. Like, I, I will say this, though. It is a, we are not of the view that the S&P is going to do a 1987 on us here. I think that the Good. bear market in equities is an arm wrestling process this year in terms of making the top. And where you know, every other week it feels like, well, am I right or not? You know, yeah. and uh, both sides can debate. I don't think the real downside of a significant percentage comes until next year. I think this year is just to get it off the high, put it in position so that it's in dire straits when it opens next year. Uh, and so it, it, if you get short now, yeah, it's, you might make some money, but it's likely to be a very much uh, undulating process up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And, and, and everyone's well, confusing. And <laughs> well, that's fine with me. I mean, who, who wants to see a bloody situation like 87 or... Yeah. 2008, 2009, even right. So we. Well, I think it gets see- that way later on in, in the bear, but I think the initial part of this particular bear is going to be arm wrestling, and, and, right. and therefore tough to make money uh, on the short side because it zigzags a lot. The the real easy downside, I think, doesn't begin till 18. So okay. I'd be cautious. I wouldn't be aggressively short stocks. I would certainly get out uh, mm-hmm. if I were long. Uh, okay. and, and I would, you know, and be flexible on the short side because the, the real money is not till next year. I don't think on the downside. Right, right, and get out of equities, uh, get out of bonds too, I suppose, and, the and then you're, you're and, and get into commodities. Right, exactly. Well, we talk about that. You talk about that. We're so thankful you were with us again today, Michael, for your for your insights. They really are a blessing to us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Well, All right, folks, well, uh, don't go away. You're going to be right back with John Rubino. We're going to have a lot of interesting things to talk to John about, uh, about the dollar, for one, and what's causing its weakness. Uh, What about Bitcoin and China and Chinese and what they're doing in terms of uh, trying to get out of the dollar and go into use their own currency, yuan, backed by gold. Some interesting topics to talk to John Rubino about, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRP. RPF respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, 
The company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me my good friend, John Rubino. And uh, before we say hello to John, let me, let me suggest very strongly that you visit his website. It's dollarcollapse.com, dollarcollapse.com. Thanks for joining me again, John. Sure, Jay. Good to talk to you again. Always good to have you with me on my show. Uh, in the first segment of today's show, I played an interview with Jeff Dice um, of the Mises Institute, along with Dr. Mor- Mark Thornton, who also uh, writes and contributes to that institute. Uh, they both blamed the Federal Reserve and manipulation of interest rates for the cause, not the cure, of the boom and bust cycles. And they also opined that there's just absolutely no way of knowing exactly when a bubble will pop and collapse. Uh, I assume you're probably of the same view, given your uh, free market inclinations. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so completely. When, when you hear a mainstream economist talk, it's it's absolutely shocking because they seem to ignore the most important part of an economy at any given time, which is its balance sheet. In other words, how much debt have we taken on and what have we used it for? Uh, in Keynesian economic thought, that is an irrelevancy. They don't pay any attention to that at all. You know, you, a, a mainstream economist probably can't tell you what debt to GDP is at any given time or whether the current number is a good number or a bad number. And, and meanwhile... The Austrian School of Economics focuses on the balance sheet of an economy, and because of that, they understand the business cycle. You know, when when a society is um, borrowing just a little bit of money at a time and putting that money to productive uses, you're early in a, a credit cycle because debt is being used for productive purposes. Mm-hmm. Later in the cycle, when you're borrowing huge amounts of money and speculating with it and taking vacations with it and buying big houses, which which is where we are now. Yeah. Um, a society is at the end of a credit cycle. So a, a collapse is coming. Uh, and that has happened continuously throughout human history. It's just a, a iron law of human nature, really. And the Austrians get it. The Keynesians don't. So you always want to listen to an Austrian economist if you want economic advice about where we are in the business cycle. Indeed. And uh, we know a lot of people who did very well uh, by being you know, being on the right side of the markets uh, during the dot-com collapse. I think of my friend David Tice, who used to be on CNBC constantly and the other major channels. Uh, then, of course, more recently, 2008, 2009, uh, people that were understanding that the housing market could not continue on forever as it was. And uh, we heard Dr. Mark Thornton in the first segment of today's show talk a little bit about how 
one person he knew put their house on the market, uh, and by the on a Sunday, uh, by the end of that Sunday, there were a huge number of, of bids, uh, and the house ended up going for far more than what the asking price was on that very first day it was put on the market. And he said, that's, you know, the kind of stuff that I remember took place. He says, there are some indications that we're in a bubble like that, that things are just not not real, but you can never know for sure when it's going to collapse. And, you know, I think Greenspan was saying that. Well, Greenspan was actually saying, you never know when you're in a bubble. You can't know that you're in a bubble. That, I think, was not true. And I think he knew it wasn't true. But, um, you know, politics being what it was. Uh, what are your thoughts on bubbles and what kind of bubbles might we be looking at right now, John? Well, you know, to go just a little bit back in this conversation, Keynesians don't know that they're, uh, whether something is a bubble or not because they don't focus on debt. So they uh-huh. miss the most important data point. Uh, Whereas the Austrians see bubbles forming because they're looking at the debt that's being used to create the bubbles. And when the mm-hmm. debt reaches a you know, certain size and a certain type, you're in a bubble and it's about to burst. Um, today, the, this bubble that we have blown up in the last eight years since the 2008-2009 crisis is the biggest of all time and it's the most broad-based. Um, James Turk and I in the book we wrote together a, a couple of years ago called it the money bubble. Because it's mm-hmm. basically the world's fiat currencies and all the financial instruments that are derivatives of fiat currencies like government bonds. And that's everything. That's everywhere. You know, the whole world is in a gigantic financial bubble right now. It's not just the U.S. subprime housing market or tech stocks anymore. It's basically everything related to the world's fiat currencies, which means when it blows up, it's going to affect everybody, not just people speculating in tech stocks or um, asset-backed bonds. You know, it's, it's everywhere and it's going to affect everyone. So this is going to be bigger than anything we've ever seen. It's absolutely 100% guaranteed to burst at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we can't know whether it's this year, next year, or 2022. You know, mm-hmm. that, That's unknowable because complex systems don't move in a linear fashion where they hit a certain point and they have to change. You know, A complex system can go on for a long time until... Something happens to crack one part of it, and then that crack spreads to everything else. We don't know what that'll be, but we know it's coming. Another Austrian concept is that of malinvestment. And, and John, I can't help but think that uh, with the manipulation of interest rates, not allowing interest rates to find their equilibrium by, because the central bankers are pumping huge amounts of money into the system always to try to control interest rates, that you're not allowing price discovery of capital, essentially. You're not allowing the markets to determine what the right price of capital is. Therefore, you have money flowing into investments that make no sense, right? And so not only do you have this enormous amount of debt, as you point out, but you also have incredibly inefficient applications of what's left of capital, right? Oh, yeah. Well, when when governments respond to past credit bubbles bursting by making money artificially easy, then that sends the wrong signal to the world's entrepreneurs and, and governments because they, they see that money is incredibly cheap by their own historical experience, which is a signal to them to borrow lots of money and then invest it. But because they're borrowing at a, you know an artificially low rate, they, they tend to invest in things that may not make sense because they're, they're looking at the wrong cost of capital, really. Sure. And so you get spectacles like the uh, the Chinese government quintupling its debt 
in a period of like six years and by building entire cities and airports and roads that nobody lives in or drives on or flies into and out of now, you know? So that's, that's a classic case of malinvestment where it's never going to generate the cash flow it needs to pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. But stuff like that is basically everywhere now where you've got people maxing out their credit cards in order to buy big houses, thinking the house is going to go up forever. Well, probably not. Um, And companies building factories that aren't needed. You know, we have insane amounts of capacity worldwide in cement and steel and autos and the list goes on and on. You know, we we can make way too much stuff for the... um, the amount of cash that consumers can raise by borrowing in order to buy that stuff, you know, and, and those things have to go bankrupt. They have to be worked off because they can't generate enough cash flow to support themselves. Uh, and again, because this is a, a global bubble, that malinvestment is everywhere. You can find it in the developing world. You know, Latin America has incredible amounts of malinvestment. You find it in the developed world where the U.S. and Europe and Japan um, all have overcapacity in various parts of the system and grossly, grossly um, more debt than they should have. So once this starts to be worked off, and there's no way to know where it begins. You know, what thing blows up first that then moves into the core and infects everything else? Um, once it starts, it's going to be amazingly big and broad-based. You know, if the Japanese government, for instance, which is uh, is only functioning because its interest rates are zero. It doesn't have to pay any money to borrow. Yeah. Um, and if it did have to pay money to borrow, its interest costs would eat up all its tax revenues. So the Japanese government could be the first to go. China has as I said, created this incredible um, credit bubble that will have to burst. It always does. And then the U.S. is just a complete mess, especially if you include uh, derivatives and unfunded liabilities of pension plans here. You know, we're we're basically bankrupt by Mm -hmm. any reasonable standard. And Europe is a basket case, too. So somewhere something blows up and infects the rest of the system. We just can't know what and when, but we know it's coming. We know it's coming, uh, and of course, then the question is, what do we do? And of course, you and and, and James Turk uh, have addressed that issue um, in your book. Uh, but you know, you mentioned China. China has this enormous debt issuance. Um, you know, my good friend Chen Lin reminds me of it all the time when I suggest that maybe China was it's building up its gold reserves like mad, and it's now seeming to want to get rid of dollars. It wants to make its own currency, its own, what I would call an illegitimate currency, just as the dollar is an illegitimate currency, of like fiat money that's created out of nothing without anything backing it. But at least China now is talking about backing its currency to an extent, if I understand cor- uh, correctly, uh, with, uh, with some gold. And in fact, uh, it's my understanding that uh, they are going to start uh, they have a, a, a gold. Ex- they have a gold exchange now, and they're going to also have a an oil exchange. It will be denominated in uh, in their local currency, uh, and uh, in fact, they are saying that they will. Uh, they you know they they want to buy their buy oil from different countries, uh, paying with yuan backed by gold. Uh, do you think gold can save China? Perhaps I mean, and they are to me. I I see it as sort of a geopolitical maneuver on their part. They're tired of the United States using their dollars that are creating out of nothing for military exploits around the world and and knocking on their borders. 
and they're saying, we don't like this anymore, and we don't want your dollars, but we've got all this gold, and if people want to use our yuan, they can exchange it for gold. What What are your thoughts on that development? Well, China, by borrowing all the money that it's borrowed, is doing something very dumb and stupid, but... Um, at the same time, as you said, it's accumulating a lot of gold, which is smart. And th- there's no real way to know for sure which of those two turns out to be the more important mm-hmm. uh, policy going forward. But the fact that China, India, and Russia, between them, are, bar- are buying up about all the gold that is created each year from the world's gold mines um, implies that they understand the monetary situation better than the West does. You know, they, they see the world's currencies mm-hmm. being inflated away in order to deal with the debt that's been taken on, which means that the dollar and the euro in the end will go down in value over time because that's the only way to get out from under this debt. Well, what won't go down in value is gold and to an extent silver. Those are older currencies that can't be created in infinite quantities by governments, so they tend to hold their values when governments are screwing up their national currencies, mm-hmm. uh, which you know leads to the conclusion that you should be buying it. And uh, China and India and Russia are doing that on a vast scale. So if China is able to, for instance, trade oil in its own currency rather than in dollars, using a gold backing of their currency to make their currency interesting to non-Chinese traders, then that's a really good thing. And it's a really dangerous thing for the dollar because one of the reasons the dollar is the world's reserve currency is that we, um, years ago, cut a deal with Saudi Arabia in which we would protect them in return for them only taking dollars for gold, mm. for oil. And that created something called the petrodollar, which, uh, which is basically a currency that is linked to oil and therefore extremely valuable because everybody needs dollars in order to buy oil. Well, you take that away and then the world doesn't need as many dollars as it did before we took that away. So the value of the dollar would other things being equal go down. And that might mean that over the next few years, the dollar leads the world's fiat currencies downward because the, um, you know, the, the, the supply demand imbalance is biggest for dollars. And that's not to say that the other currencies will be strong. They'll just go up versus the dollar, but they'll go down versus real stuff. And that's one of the things that makes it hard to figure out what currencies are doing because we value them against each other. So one is strong and one is weak at any given time, but they're all really weak um, relative to the things you can buy with those currencies. So that will just accelerate the process if the dollar um, is no longer the only thing you can use to buy oil. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... um the petrodollar, uh, Kissinger went off to Saudi Arabia, as you suggested, uh, making this arrangement. And so they formed OPEC, and then all the OPEC countries were required to use the dollar. Of course, the dollar then was used for almost everything globally. It was, it was and has and still is at this moment the world's reserve, uh, number one reserve currency anyway. But obviously, the Chinese are trying to, to change that. But it's certainly uh, a lot of people think that the military-industrial complex that was helped to finance, to be financed by this ability to create endless amounts of money out of thin air, uh, it, you know, was also used to enforce the dollar. Uh, some people think the Iraq War, the Qaddafi, the disposal of Qaddafi as well, and others, uh, and all the countries that refuse to use dollars are somehow deemed to be rogue nations. So can you imagine that? Well, anyway, the, another thing that's come into play here, John, that's really interesting 
uh, is Bitcoin. And China apparently is very troubled by this uh, presence of Bitcoin. Would you care to comment on that development? Oh, yeah. The, you know, the rise of cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin in particular uh, has been fascinating over the last few years. And one of the big questions has been what governments are going to do once cryptocurrencies become a threat to these national monopoly fiat currencies. And we're, we're seeing um, the, the outlines of that response take place lately. The IRS in the U.S., for instance, announced that they now have tracking software that can tell who is buying and selling Bitcoin and generating um, tax consequences because of that, because they, they count Bitcoin as a, um, a commodity. Which means sure. every time you sell it or buy it or use it to buy something, you've created a capital gain or a loss. And you've got to total that up and pay taxes on it at the end of the year. Uh, now they can tell who you are and they're going to come after you if you don't do it. China, meanwhile, just banned initial coin offerings going forward. In other words, uh, you can't bring out a new cryptocurrency in China and then sell it to the public and see how it trades anymore. And that's been one of the, the big factors in that market where you know you can, you can bring out um, a new cryptocurrency and sell it and make a lot of money. There's something like 900 cryptocurrencies out there now because of this. Uh, if that is, if you know, if that ban is gonna hold in China and then spread to the rest of the world, then that changes the dynamic in the uh, cryptocurrency market dramatically. And there's no end to this because uh, to the extent that these currencies grow and become popular, they are threats to the dollar and the euro and the yuan and to those governments' power. And they, they won't let that happen. The governments will either try to regulate cryptocurrencies out of existence or just make them illegal or co-opt them somehow. You know, And that all has to play out. We don't know exactly uh, what the details will be, but we know that that's going to be a big part of the story in cryptocurrencies going forward. And it's going to add an element of uncertainty. You know, If you don't know that your money is going to be made illegal, or, or not going forward, then that money's a lot less valuable. So, so it could affect the price of cryptocurrencies dramatically, especially if the US or Europe get involved in, in something the way China is, is, mm -hmm. is behaving now. Yeah, for sure. Well, John, I, I think you and I, we've talked about it many times. Uh, gold is the currency. That's where you should be putting your savings now. You need to hold a certain amount of currency just to conduct your business, your daily lives, and so forth. Gold is the place to put your savings. But Michael's telling us um, that gold shares, especially, well, he doesn't say especially, but gold shares in general, as he sees them, outperforming gold. So gold, obviously, more risk. It's a business you're investing in when you buy a gold mining company. But they've certainly been kind to me so far this year and to a lot of my subscribers and other people as well, especially some of the exploration companies like Novo Resources and Klondike and a few of those things. Uh, any comments on the relative value of shares versus gold bullion? Well... Mining shares are more volatile than the underlying metals, so they'll tend to go up in good times and more than gold and down in bad times. Now, we're coming into a pretty good time for gold and silver, which means the mining stocks ought to do real well. And your listeners should know that your top pick in your newsletter, Novo Resources, has, uh, has gone up almost 10 times in the past year from uh, in U.S. dollars, 49 cents a share to $3 and something right now. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that can happen in the junior space when things really get going. You'll see these things just take off. So, uh, you know, I'm reading your newsletter with interest because I want to find some more Novo resources. And I, I think the next few years is going to be fertile ground for that kind of thing. 
Yeah, well, I think it. Uh, there may not be too many more Novo resources if it's as big as we think it is, but there are a lot of companies out there. Klondike is one. RN Resources another. Well, a lot of others that are in my newsletter, I think, have great upside potential. During bull markets, it's a great time to own these things. During bear markets, it's not a very good time. I suffered through it and you know, was wishing that I had been uh, paying attention to Michael Oliver uh, get me out in 2012 because we went 2012 to 2016, three, four years of very painful downturn and the gold shares, you know, when you're in a bull market, the gold shares can go up by six, seven, eight times. The indexes go up by that much, five, six times anyway. But you can lose 80% of your value in a very short period of time. And the real key, John, from what I understand, uh, is that you, you need negative real rates of interest to really drive this. So as the policymakers are driving the interest rates lower, uh, that's extremely bullish for gold. We're basically out of time. Any one last thought, perhaps? Um, no, I think we've covered everything really well today, Jay. So. Thank you so much, John, uh, for your time. Uh, always good to hear from you, and you know, always welcome back. We'll talk to you again sometime in the near future. Great. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, Dan Oliver will be with me, and I think Michael Oliver hopefully will also join me, and Robert Carrington. He's uh, heading up another exciting junior mining company called New Range Gold Mining. They have a project in Nevada that looks very, very exciting. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.